Hello, welcome to the second session in part two of our discipleship module on the Kingdom of God. Right now we're exploring how the Kingdom of God is described throughout Scripture. We ended the last session reading portions of Psalm 148, which calls on all created things, including all the people of the earth, to praise the Lord. Of course, the Psalms aren't only about how God is the king of everything. They're also about how God is the king of his people. So the psalmist says in Psalm 44, You are my king, O God. Ordain salvation for Jacob. The name of Jacob is another way of talking about Israel. And it would be a good idea to look at this kingdom called Israel. The only nation in the history of the world that we know of that was founded by God himself. The only one, the only nation to whom he said, I will be your God and you will be my people. This might seem like a fairly simple thing to unpack. But it turns out that the process of calling a special nation out of all the kingdoms on the earth is not as simple as it might seem. The main reason for this is that God's idea for what the ideal king and kingdom ought to be, and the nation's idea for what a king ought to be, were not always in line. To show that, we're going to look at a couple passages from Judges and First and Second Samuel. Now, the book of Joshua, which immediately precedes the book of Judges, tells the story of the conquest of the land that God has brought his people into. After the conquest, although the people swore that they would follow God, by the time you get to the book of Judges, just a few years later, most of the people who uh, conquered the land have died, and things have headed south. So in Judges 2, uh, 10, it says that there arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord or the work that he had done for Israel. And they abandoned the Lord, the God of their fathers, who had brought them out of the land of Egypt. They went after other gods from among the gods of the peoples who were around them and bowed down to them. Now, even though it would have been within his rights to abandon these people that had turned away from him, instead God exhibits his mercy. He disciplined them to turn them around by temporarily giving the people over to the hands of their enemies. And then it says in chapter 216, the Lord raised up judges to save his people from these enemies. Still, this cycle of rebel, get plundered, get rescued by a judge, repent, forget, and rebel again is repeated over and over. And it becomes clear by the end of the book of Judges that this just isn't working. And while it might baffle us as to why these people who had been rescued would turn so quickly away from God, it shouldn't surprise us. The ancient Near East at that time was a hotbed of pantheons and a multiplicity of local gods. Uh, one that you might be familiar with is named Baal. We hear about this god so much that it starts to sound like a false god uh, sort of sauntered in around God's people like the Fonz trying to distract uh, passerby Hebrews. But that isn't the case. Baal is actually a very generic word that can be used both as a, a proper name and a general descriptor for a lord or a master. Similar to how we use the word God with a capital G to describe the almighty and powerful triune creator and sustainer of everyone and everything. And sometimes we use the word God with a little g to describe idols and false gods. Big, big B, Baal, was everywhere in the ancient Near East, along with a bunch of other little b, Baals, and a host of other gods uh, in the pantheons. And most of the time these local gods had the support of local governments. If you moved from one place to another, you might take your family gods with you, but you would also have to pay homage to whatever local gods were around you. The gods could be rather territorial. And we tend to judge God's people pretty harshly when we hear of their constant idolatry, but it's worth recognizing that we may well have done the same thing. 
Now, in this context, it makes sense then why the author's refrain in Judges almost uh, sounds like a plea for something better. In those days, we read as the last line in the book of Judges, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. It was really starting to feel like Israel would not follow God unless someone came along to unify them. God had, in the past, made provisions for a king and gave instructions for how a king ought to rule in Deuteronomy 17. He was to be a fellow Israelite who did not acquire a lot of wealth, who held closely to God's law and feared God in his heart. There was nothing inherently evil about having a king. At the beginning of 1 Samuel, after we're introduced to the boy who would eventually become the last judge in Israel, we see a fractured nation in turmoil. The priests of God are not doing their job well. The Philistines are attacking. And in a moment of desperation, the Israelite army does the unthinkable. They bring the Ark of God, which represented the very royal throne of God, containing the tablets of the law, into a battle where they were handily defeated. The Ark was lost, and they were absolutely devastated. However, when the Philistines carried that same Ark of God into the temple of their god, Dagon, the idol of Dagon is broken into pieces. And after that, everywhere the ark went, it caused pain to the inhabitants until at last the Philistines decided that it wasn't worth it. And they returned the ark with a small offering, which was the equivalent of a heartfelt apology. We're sorry we captured this thing. Please tell it to stop sending plagues on us, your friends, the Philistines. Now, if the people had been paying attention, they might have realized that God had just exhibited his power and protection over his people in this event, apart from any centralized human ruler. He was showing all the people in the land that the kingdom was his, but their memory was short. As Samuel the judge and prophet grew older, his sons were not following in his footsteps, and the people got scared. Beginning in verse uh, eight of First Sam, uh, uh, verse eight four of First Samuel, it says, "Then all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah, and said to him, Behold, you're old, and your sons do not walk in our in your ways. Now appoint for us a king to judge us, like all the nations." And the Lord said to Samuel, Obey the voice of the people in all that they say to you. For they've not rejected you, but they've rejected me from being king over them. Now then, obey their voice, only you shall solemnly warn them and show them the ways of the king who shall reign over them. So Samuel tells the people that the new king will take some of their sons for his army, and others to plow his fields, and others to make his weapons, and he will take their daughters to make perfume and cook meals, and he will take the best fields for himself, and a tenth of all the grain for his court, and he'll take as he pleases servants and animals from the people to become his slaves. But the warning falls on deaf ears. The people refuse to obey the voice of Samuel, it says in verse 19. And they said, No, but there shall be a king over us, that we may also be like all the nations, and that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. You see, although at one time uh, provisions had been made for a king who would help lead the people in serving God, the people instead demanded a king who would most help them look like everyone else. Saul, who was the first uh, king in Israel, was actually what the people wanted. But because he was unwilling to lead the people to God, God replaced him with David, who is described as a man after God's own heart. He was a king in the tribe of Judah from where the ruling scepter would not depart, as it was promised and prophesied by Jacob at the end of the book of Genesis. David is able, for the most part, to bring peace to the land from the surrounding enemies, to unite all the tribes under one nation, and lead the people in the way that God intended a king to lead his people. 
He was the one who wrote most of the Psalms, the best king that Israel ever had. Truly someone who constantly and continually sought after God. But even he was far from a perfect king. In 2 Samuel 7, God tells David that he will establish, establish his throne forever. And David humbly replies, Who am I, O Lord God? And what is my house that you have brought me thus far? And then, only four short chapters later, the best king that Israel has ever had, and will ever have, takes another man's wife, gets her pregnant, then uses his entire army to murder the man, just to cover up his own actions. Things only go downhill from there. David's son Solomon rules in relative peace, but he also departs from following God. And after he dies, the, the nation fractures in two. After that, the Old Testament is the story of a kingdom divided. The northern kingdom never has a good king, and it falls apart and is defeated by the Assyrians after only a few hundred years. The southern kingdom has a few good kings, but eventually the same thing happens there. And they too are taken into exile by the Babylonians. Now, some people in Jesus' day may have looked back at the good old days <clears throat> of the kingdom of Israel, but it turns out that it wasn't all it was cracked up to be. So what does this mean? That the only nation ever founded by God was a complete and utter failure? If later on Jesus refused to, t refused to tie his kingdom to political and national interest, why would God ever have created a nation that was destined to fail? Well, there are a few reasons why this was necessary. First, it was a demonstration that God wanted his people to be a blessing on the earth. But that if God was going to bless the earth through his people, it had to happen on his terms. God, who created the world, was personal and relational. He made promises and covenants with his people. He graciously provided for all of their needs. If they kept his covenant, they would be blessed and prosper in the land. And if they broke his covenant, they could not properly represent his character, and they would have to be removed from the land. Second, it gave context to the law. God wanted to communicate his righteous standard to humanity. So it makes sense uh, that he should do that for a time in a political context. While it was not necessary that they, there be a king to implement his law, it did set God's righteous standard against all the standards of the surrounding nations. Third, it showed us uh, early on that being in communion with God requires being called out of one kingdom and into allegiance to another. It showed us that a person cannot serve two masters. While it put God's power on full display, it made a special place where God's power would not erroneously be ascribed to some other false god. God's act of salvation might have otherwise been called the benevolence of the sea god when he divided the Red Sea, or the kindness of the river god when he stopped the Jordan River, or the power of the storm god when thunder rattled from Sinai. But when God says to Israel, I will be your God and you will be my people, it helped to dispel the myth that there is any power in the world apart from him. And ultimately, one of the best lessons for us to learn from this kingdom in the Old Testament is the absolute failure of human kingship and the need for divine kingship. It gives us a longing for something better. A king who can save his people, not only from everyone else, but a king who can save his people from themselves. Well, that concludes this second part of this section on the kingdom of God and Scripture. And we'll continue on next time and look at what Scripture has to say about God's kingdom after the human kingdom. Is